Welcome to the Out of Limits Video Truth Radio Show. OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. This is part two of our four-part series on the coming global financial collapse. Let us begin tonight's show. We are now going to feature a portion of a previously recorded interview I did with legendary investor Jim Rogers. He's the author of several best-selling books such as Hot Commodities, Street Smarts, and one of his quotes that I love is he says that the farmers are going to be one day be driving Lamborghinis, the stockbrokers are going to be driving taxis. He too foresees a major correction in the market. He's going to explain why right now. And if the U.S. was a stock, how would you analyze it? And what are some of the patterns that you can guarantee that you would see happening in the future if the U.S. was a stock? Well, the U.S. debt situation continues to go through the roof. We become less and less competitive. If the U.S. were a stock, I would have to sell it short, I'm afraid, because I don't see anything on the horizon that's going to turn turn us around. I wish I, I don't like saying that. You know, I'm an American citizen, American voter, mm-hmm. American taxpayer, just like you. But I don't really see anything that's going to turn us around. <laughs> if, you yeah. UK, if you look at the UK, it declined for a long time, um, and it continues to decline. If you look at Spain long ago, same thing. These things just have a life of their own. They continue to decline. There are rallies along the way. This is our in stocks. But unfortunately, I'm afraid the U.S. is in decline. I would love to see something that's going to save us. But so far, I haven't seen it. Do you believe that this, the I don't know, $68 trillion, $100 trillion outstanding debt is eventually going to have to be liquidated worldwide? Is that something that is inevitable? It's going to happen regardless of what anyone does? That's the way it's always worked in the past for, other, for every country that's gotten itself into this situation. You know, you have a crisis or a semi-crisis, and the debt gets uh, eliminated one way or the other. It gets inflated away or just debased, so that even though you get paid, you don't get paid real value. So it's, it's always happened this way. I, I can't, I don't like saying this one, but it's, unfortunately, we have to deal with facts or we're yeah. going to be suffering too. Right, well, in a, let's say, for example, the debt gets liquidated and all the debt's forgiven. But it happens on a worldwide scale, and the U.S. is the most outstanding debtor nation. Is the U.S. going to be the one that's going to be most substantially impacted from the negative, or are all countries going to be um, harmed? And do you think that that could actually be something tragic enough or devastating enough to kind of shift away from fractional reserve banking? Is that going to be the one thing that's going to fundamentally shift people away from that? Well, if, if we do that, you're going to wipe out a gigantic uh, portion of the population. And when you wipe out your savings, the people who save and invest, you usually destroy your your society. I mean, the Germans did that in the early 20s. You know the rest of that story. But if you yep. wipe out all the pension plans, all the endowments, I mean, Princeton University, you're going to be in pretty bad trouble if you suddenly, if there's suddenly, there are no debts in the world. So you can do it. Yeah, you can do it. And there's some people who say, ah, oh, that would solve the problems. But think about all the insurance companies that are suddenly bankrupt, endowments, pension plans, old people. Everybody's in a real bond if you do something like that. That's okay, more or less what we're doing now. You know, what we're doing now is what the way the system is supposed to work is if people get into trouble, competent people come along, take over the assets, reorganize the assets, and start over. What we're doing in America is we're taking the assets away from the competent people giving them to the incompetent people, 
the bankrupts and say, okay, now you're competing with the competent people with their money. So if you go ahead and just wipe out all the debts, boy, the competent people who've done everything right are going to be a terrible, terrible situation. And the people who are going to come out on top usually are not the people who build a society or an economy. Mr. Jim Rogers, legendary investor, best-selling author, and uh, I call him a living genius. Mr. Rogers, thank you so much. To learn more about Mr. Rogers, please go to his website at jimrogers.com. Also, want to go to amazon.com, see all of his great books that he has. Get to my children's street smarts, investment biker. They're phenomenal. Mr. Rogers, an honor, sir. Thank you so much. Well, I'm flattered. I wish half of that were true. Thank, thank you very, yeah. very much. Welcome back to the program. It's Mr. Chris Dwayne. He is the creator of Silver Shield and the creator of The Greatest Truth Never Told on YouTube, which has, I believe, I said over 22 million viewers at this point, 22 million views. So, I think it was like 30, but... Incredible. <laughs> and this gentleman, I've been following his work since 2010. Very fascinated by the work he's put out. Mr. Dwayne, welcome back to the program. Honored to have you with us, sir. Always good to be back. Thank you. Chris, from your perspective, why are we going to have an economic collapse? And why have you been so passionate about it? Because, you know, based on your story, you weren't always like this. You were a person who was part of the system. You believed in um, what a lot of things were saying, and then you changed your whole perspective. How did that happen? Why do you believe this is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I was an uh, infantry Marine for seven years. I was a millionaire by the time I was 30 and a very lucrative uh, family business, and when I woke up to the reality that our money is debt, and that when debt is created, money is created, and when debt is paid off, money is destroyed, and that the game is rigged from the very beginning by privately owned central banks, uh, and that all the governments and all the people in the world are indebted to a few trillionaires that warp our reality into debt and death, tends to have an effect on a person. So I took it upon myself to not only... Um, you know, try to secure my family uh, by predicting the 2008 financial crisis. I actually left my family business uh, in May of 2008. It was only five months uh, ahead of the curve to, um, you know, to see only to see that, you know, happen. And uh, that 2008 financial crisis had a tremendous impact on me. And I don't think we've even felt the full brunt of what is yet to come. Uh, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people in 2008, you know, got hurt maybe woke up, but then went right back to doing exactly what caused the same problems uh, in 2008. And the problem is now that the 2008 financial crisis was merely an institutional crisis of a few bad banks making a few bad bets on a few bad housing markets and screwing over a few pensions. This next crisis will be global, systemic, generational, and probably the single largest event in human history because now it's not just an institutional crisis, it's a global systemic crisis, one in which nobody went to jail, no changes were made, and the debts have only gotten larger, and, the, and, the, and it's spread all over the world. Not one single country will be spared from this. So how is life going to change for the average American, for the average human being on this planet after this crisis happens? I think because... most noticeably, I think most noticeably is that this is a, uh, an America that doesn't you know, have anything to do with what the founding fathers created. It is one where the banks have totally taken over all aspects of the American economy. Uh, and we've been living off of, uh, you know, the, the former wealth of this nation. 
by creating the world's large uh, world's reserve currency, and we've been spending more than we produce. Uh, that's why we've run up all these debts. That's why we continue to have trade deficits, and we are a country that consumes more than we produce. And when this all comes to an end, we are going to have generations that are going to have to consume less than they produce, which means the standard of living that we've grown accustomed to here in the United States will fall dramatically unless you are, have your wealth in real tangible assets, which I believe is the only way to transfer your wealth from this financial paradigm into whatever the next financial paradigm is. Okay. And they say that there's going to be a new financial paradigm. Do you think it'll be based on a fiat currency? Do you think they'll say, well, now we're, you know, trade your dollars in for this new currency and the whole thing yeah. will start up again? Yeah. I mean, first, there has to be a massive collapse. Uh, there's $240 trillion worth of unfunded liabilities just in the United States alone. Uh, you know, people look at you know, states like Illinois and go, oh, they're in deep trouble. Like the average, I think, Illinois citizen owes, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars to just the Illinois pensions, much less their own taxes uh, to the federal government. And the federal government's unfunded liabilities are in excess of, you know, eight times the you know total GDP of this country. Um, so what will end up happening is that these bankers, and you're seeing this now in Venezuela, uh, those that own and control the system will continue to print money to meet all the obligations and literally steal all the wealth of everybody below them because they use this funny money to keep going to buy assets, and it makes it more difficult for the average person to live. Uh, and it, it robs the wealth of all the people that are underneath it because they end up having to sell their you know, there's basic everything just to make ends meet. And um, what will end up happening is a hyperinflation, probably on a global uh, level. Uh, and, you know, all these assets that have been pumped up by this Ponzi fiat money that we have uh, will ultimately get destroyed in real terms, inflation-adjusted terms. Uh, and, you know, you're going to see, you know, everything that we've come to know end. You know, we will no longer be able to consume more than we have than we produce, uh, you know, all the debts that are out there will get wiped away or will become worthless, I should say, um, in relationship to the currency that's out there. So in Venezuela, you know, it was very common for, uh, you know, a Venezuelan person to have not quite the lifestyle that we had, but, you know, a decent lifestyle for South America. And now they're predicting that inflation is going to run at one million percent this year alone. Um, you know, that destroys all the debts that was, cre you know, that were created on there. But it also makes it so impossible that you can't even buy food. So, you know, it might feel tempting to be like, oh, I'm debt free. But the problem is you may not even have enough money to buy an egg. Uh, we've seen this in Zimbabwe. We've seen this in Weimar, Germany. And I expect we're going to see it at some point on the global economy with the major nations. Uh, because this, the economic imbalances, the the debts, the the criminal uh, people at the top, they all are the same. It's just it's going to take a lot longer uh, for it to wash out. But make, mark my word, we will not get out of this, uh, you know, this decade without having some sort of massive financial upheaval. And I really think that they're going to lay it all on Trump. I think he's been put in there uh, to take all the blame for the generations of economic sins that we've done to to ourselves. Why would they pick him? Why him? Why not someone else? What a perfect guy to blow up on. You know, they, as I think at the heart of, uh, you know, at the heart, these criminal elite, they love socialism and communism. Uh, it makes them popular with the poor. 
Uh, it makes them, you know, available to uh, to hide their wealth. Uh, if you look at the secret history of, of Wall Street, they actually funded the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Uh, they funded Nazi Germany. They were all about spreading debt and death. And, you know, communism and uh, socialism is one that you will find billionaires and trillionaires support that because it makes uh, makes them not have any economic competition. So I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, we're going to have the similar uh, play, playbook that we had during the Great Depression. Most people don't realize that prior to the Great Depression, during the height of the Roaring Twenties, which is probably the most amazing technological decade that we had with, you know, trains and cars and movies and telegraphs and all, you know, flying and all this stuff that was going on there. There was a massive, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, wealth that was created during the Roaring Twenties. And it came to an end when a very successful businessman became president, President Hoover. You know, he had uh, great spending projects. You know, he did the Hoover Dam. Uh, He started a tariff war with the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act uh, trade war, and that led into the the Great Depression and World War II. And what did we get? We got 20 years' worth of a socialist, Roosevelt, who confiscated gold, raised taxes, uh, and dragged on the you know the Great Depression for you know years, and it was only World War II that got us out of it, only because we were the only country not devastated uh, in a war. I mean, all of our economic competitors were laid to waste. You know, all of Europe, all of Russia, all of Asia. Like we were the only country left, and we've been living off of that uh, economic reality post World War II and spending. Like, you know, we don't have a care in the world. And now we're, what, $24 trillion in debt? Trump just spent more money in the last six months than Obama ever did in his administration. I think he did over a trillion dollars in six months. And all these Republicans who think, oh, Trump was going to save us and, and do all that other stuff. If Obama spent as much as Trump just did in these past six months, they'd be up in arms saying, oh, he's the Antichrist. But somehow because there's an R in front of the president – they give them a pass. No, both sides are bought and paid for, and I think they're going to end up dumping all this stuff onto Trump, much in the way they did Hoover, and it's going to usher in another 20 years of socialist presidents, much in the same way that we had Roosevelt, except it's going to be like this, uh, you know, uh, Brooklyn Democrat or Bernie Sanders or, you know, some other flavor of I understand. Uh, how can they do that? Socialism. How is that? I wonder right. how this this collapse is going to happen when people are not going to. Like, do you think it's going to do anything to wake people up or awaken their consciousness? I don't know. I thought we were going to have that after the 2008 financial crisis. I saw and the Fed. I saw people awakening to the Constitution and understanding that we cannot have all these unlimited wars all over the world, and that we were a non-interventional uh, government. Uh, government was supposed to be small. I saw the grassroots rising of Ron Paul. Uh, who spoke about honest money, uh, stuff like that. And somewhere along the line, we got uh, infiltrated, subverted, and destroyed. And now you get a lot of the people in the truth movement believing in cryptocurrencies, uh, You know, the same people that used to rail against the Federal Reserve and their fiat money, their fake paper money, uh, and used to buy gold and silver, all of a sudden you know, turned into the Goldman Sachs guys and said, hey, let's go out and let's go promote these Ponzi schemes out there. Uh, and sell it off to the greater fool so then I can go buy fancy cars and, you know, beach houses in Miami. So, uh, you know, I think the only lessons that ever are really learned are people, the hard lessons. And unfortunately, I think another economic collapse is going to be what's going to, you know, 
bring them to Jesus, so to speak. I mean, I remember my grandparents. They were scarred forever from the Great Depression. I mean, they were saving pennies and nickels all the way up until the day they died uh, and lived frugally. But we don't have that in America. And I, unfortunately, I think the only way people are going to learn is through hardship. And the worst thing is that people never, ever wake up ahead of time and say, hey, this world is unsustainable, immoral, dangerous. I don't have my wealth in real tangible wealth. I look on my phone at some digits and somehow think that that's wealth. Um, People don't wake up. I mean, I just posted a video about Venezuela. You know, the inflation rate is five or one million percent and silver is up five million percent, like five times the inflation rate. So silver has gone up five times in real terms in purchasing power. Uh, And yet some of the comments I read there, they're like, I mean, just idiots like i don't know what to tell them like i'm giving them all the information everything that i can and yet they still don't want to they don't want to listen so they're going to listen the hard way i told some people i I tell a lot of people about the the collapse and sometimes people say well oh well no it's not going to happen they think i'm crazy like oh you're crazy and you know if america goes down the whole world's going to go down and all this stuff i don't understand what, what it's going to take to get through them but what were some of the indications that you would say, uh, why are you so convinced this is going to happen? What makes you, you know, be, sleep at night saying, I'm 100% convinced this is going to happen no matter what anyone else says? Well, things that cannot go on forever won't. You cannot run up debt. Like, I mean, just think on your own basic level. Like, if you were in debt, your own house, you and your wife, dog, and you got $10,000 worth of credit card debt, right? And you're hungry, and you go out and go buy another meal get away with it for a while, but then at some point you have to pay those bills back. Well, the government just keeps on taking more and more money out, and that's why we're on a, uh, you know, a, 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 a huge run-up in the amount of debt. And what people don't understand is that the game is rigged. Our money is debt. In order for money to come into existence, a debt needs to be taken out. So every time that uh, the system, in order to function, in order to live, more debt has to be taken out globally every year in excess of the debt and interest that has accrued the year before. It is fundamentally a Ponzi scheme. Our money, our everything that we do, and then the assets that are built up on this all uh, taking consideration the idea that we can have unlimited amount of energy, that our demographics are going to continue to grow, that interest rates are going to remain at zero, and that the world's going to be at peace. Like any of those factors go wrong, and the whole system ends. Um, so it's an unsustainable system that I don't think, you know, will make it out of this decade, uh, much less, you know, who, know, who knows? It, I mean, it could start this fall. All I know is that it will be the single largest event in human history, and nobody's prepared for it. Nobody has real skills, real friends, or real wealth. And those are the three things that I recommend people to start, you know, thinking about them in themselves. You know, most of people's Wealth is tied into some computer digit screen and some bank that, you know, who knows what will end up happening with that. You know, you have to measure your wealth in calories, ounces, bullets, tools, uh, you know, seeds, you know, all that type of stuff. Real things. That's what real wealth is. Everything else is a future promise on wealth. And people in Venezuela are learning that. They may have had a million bolivars saved up, and now that, you know, that might have bought them a fantastic house and lots of cars and all that other stuff a few years ago. Now they won't even buy an egg. This is it's horrible. What would be a couple, two or three indications that uh, this, the great collapse, this you know, unprecedented collapse is going to happen? What are some things that people should be on the lookout for? 
I mean, whenever it does happen, it's going to be hard and fast. I mean, look at what happened in 2008. You know, in September 2008, things were relatively fine, right? Come October 2008, people were like, oh, my God, the sky's falling, and I may lose my house, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to lose my job, and, you know, or gas prices going up. I mean, the, the big triggers that I think ultimately are going to trigger it is the rising interest rates. Uh, Trump, when he was candidate Trump, said the Federal Reserve was being very politicized uh, in keeping in, uh, uh, interest rates low for Obama, uh, and that if interest rates rise just a little bit, it's going to blow up the whole thing. He knows it, and he ran and won, uh, and interest rates do keep going up. And In fact, they're supposed to go up two more times. Uh, oil prices have been going up. <laughs> oil prices – sorry, you got to cut that out. <laughs> um, Oil prices have been going up, you know, back in uh, you know, a few years ago. I mean, we saw, what, $140 barrel oil, uh, and I've seen predictions that we could see $200 and $400 barrel oil. Uh, we're starting, you know, to thump the war drums again with Iran. Iran controls the Strait of Hormuz, which I think 30 to 40% of all the oil in the world goes through there. Uh, these, these are all bad things that are happening. Uh, the amount of debt that's been going up, Trump spent another trillion dollars in the past six months, you know, and this is a candidate that said he was going to pay off the national debt in eight years, which is a complete impossibility. So, there, I mean, there's factors, rising interest rates, rising oil prices, uh, you know, war drums, any of those type things can really trigger it. And once it goes, it's all going to go. It's, it's Everything's so interconnected and it's globally. So, so uh, what are we going to do I mean, for watching you know, the news? trade wars, too. <laughs> It's pretty crazy. I mean, if you're watching TV, you're like, you, you want to say, okay, well, this looks like it's going to go. Does that mean we just say that people are selling off treasuries? Because I saw this report about Russia, how they, they, how many um... – Russia sold all their treasuries, and they've been buying gold. Smart move for a country. If there's a massive sell-off of U.S. treasuries by all countries and a panic selling, would you say that would be a clear indication that things about to go? Mm, no, because I think the Fed would be the buyer of last resort. You know, so you know they. I mean, they could they could buy up their own debt. Trump said that, and, and you know, if we could buy up our own debt at a cheap rate, why wouldn't we? Well, because we're creating more money out of thin air. So, what would happen is, if say China or Russia ends up selling their treasuries, yeah, the Fed might you know go buy it, but with new funny money that's created out of thin air, Chinese are going to take their proceeds, and where are they going to go? Are they going to go buy gold? Are they going to go buy? Uh, you know, nuclear power, uh, you know, I don't know what they're going to go buy with, but those dollars now are circulating in the economy. And at some point, those dollars come home to us, and it creates a very inflationary environment. We've been exporting uh, inflation through our trade imbalances for years. But if it comes back, there's a lot of dollars flooding out of the market. And we saw a lot of it with the real estate boom, um, you know, and then they, they can't they, – they, I've seen it in uh, an article saying in California – that the Chinese are no longer buying in the, in the United States, and that's pretty much going to call the top of that housing bubble over there. So, you know, where are the Chinese going to spend their money? You know, they, I would think gold and silver and oil and you know a lot of other things that are going to go out there. Are other countries going to debt as well? Am I is that even Japan's oh, yeah. printing yeah. a lot yeah. of money? You look at look at China. Since 2008, they've quadrupled their debt that they had. Uh, they've gone full retard with them, uh, growing debt. But this is a country with three times the population of us, much lower standard of living, and they've been spending it on infrastructure projects. I mean, they have um, 
uh, high-speed train projects out there that would put anything in this country to shame. I mean, they literally are living in Jetson land compared to what we are in some of these places. You know, the United States has a declining infrastructure system, and we don't, you know, massive traffic jams, and China's in- investing. They're, you know, building huge cities, you know, that would put, you know, some of our cities to shame. Uh, and moving massive amount of people from the countryside, they're preparing for a future, and they're investing in real, real things, infrastructure, buildings, and stuff like that. So what they're going into debt. They're investing. What, in the country. what are we spending all? The, what are we spending all of our money on? Spending it on uh, a seven trillion dollar war in the Middle East that produced nothing. Uh, the average consumer buys a bunch of shit that they don't need to impress people that they don't know or care about, and we don't need the stuff. So, and they don't have the money to do it. Well, let's say. You know, let's just flash forward and we say that, okay, the collapse has happened, the global financial collapse happened. What is it? What is the future of the Federal Reserve in, in the U.S.? What is that going to – what place will they have on the world stage? They'll probably keep going. Like, people just don't get – they don't get the system. They're not going to be – unless you can properly see the system, you can't rebel against it. And far too many people are, are dependent upon it. I mean, there's a quote from the Rothschilds that said that the people that understand the system will be so dependent upon its favors that there will be no objection from it. So a guy like me who knows all this stuff should be out, you know, working at Goldman Sachs and making money, you know, buying and selling, you know, digital illusions of wealth um, and not speaking out against this. And instead, I walked away from it and I've dedicated myself to telling people the truth, uh, you know, in hopes of preparing them for this. But uh, I'm a rare it? breed. <laughs> yes. And there's not that many people that listen. You know, I've been no, I, th- I think you've been years. so far ahead it's, of the curve. Your videos, how... I mean, you're very straightforward. You're very ahead of the curve. A lot of your videos. I know, but people don't listen. So, you know, to what ends does it do? You know. I'm not sure. I was the gentleman I love to read as well. His name is Chris Hedges, and he mm-hmm. talked about the coming collapse. And one of the things he talked about is he said that um, just because people are so passive and they're so just sitting there, you know, not even paying attention that we're basically going to go in the dark ages of humanity when this thing happens. And I'm wondering from your perspective if you agree with that, if you think that because of a lack of people willing to engage or think outside their comfort zones, that when this thing does happen, if, if we're going to go into a global uh, fascist reality where everyone's under control of one world government, we're all, all under tyranny. I tend to think that things are not going to be equally bad everywhere all at once. I do think a lot of portion of humanity, you know, especially in the United States, is just going to join the rest of the world, the two-thirds of the world that lives off of $2 a day and has, uh, you know, left to abject poverty. Um, but I also look at the fact that we do have a lot of bright people. The infrastructure is there. Uh, people haven't forgotten how to produce goods. Um, I think the two-thirds, you know, 70% of the economy that is consumerism will be totally dead. Um you know, malls and strip malls will be vacant, um, and there will be a lot more people just farming just to make their own food um, because there will be the only thing left for them to do of, of economic worth. I do fear the idea that there's AI and robotics, that this will be the first economic collapse and revolution, that, huma- that humans will not be able to transfer their wealth uh, through their labor. I mean, think about it. I mean, there's always been wars that garner, you know, slaves and business, you know, working people and move them from the countryside to the city so that they could use their labor for these 
you know, oligarchs to create wealth from it and from, you know, the industrial revolution with steel and rail mills. We needed all that human labor uh, to the technological uh, revolutions that we've had of late where there's, you know, need for high-skilled computer programmers and all this other stuff. But, you know, within 10 to 15 years, they don't even need that. Like with artificial intelligence and robotics, they'll be able to create their own, you know, fantasy Star Trek world and literally leave majority of humanity behind. You guys look at, you know, Bezos and Musk and, you know, all these uh, guys. I mean, they're talking about flying off to Mars. They're talking about, you know, super enhanced, uh, you know, downloading consciousness stuff, not, you know, rebuilding a sustainable, uh, you know, cities or, or, you know, raising up the uh, quality of life for the rest of humanity. No, they're going to go live like the Jetsons. They're going to say, thank you very much for buying all your shit at Amazon. I'm going to go live in my own little compound, and it's going to be an absolute uh, separation of of wealth. And one in which I I don't think the rest of humanity is going to be able to come back from. When this collapse, as far as the Great Collapse happens, does that fall in favor or against the elites and their relevancy? Do the elites look at the collapse as something that, well, something that they've been planning all along, something that they'll be used as a means to further enslave humanity or as a means to consolidate their power? Or do they see the collapse as a genuine threat against their power and grip on on humanity because it may, theoretically speaking, awaken people to a higher consciousness? They're ambivalent to it because they're going to profit off of whatever they decide to do. You know, I mean, one of the oldest Rothschild quotes is, you know, buy when there's blood on the street. These guys don't care whether markets go up or down. They're always on the right side of the trade. Um, So, you know, if there is a collapse, I'm sure that they'll be in gold and silver and, uh, you know, they'll sacrifice their political puppets like Trump or Hillary or whoever else they want to roll out there. Have the angry masses get mad at some guy who literally has nothing to do with it, like a president uh, or a, a Federal Reserve chairman or something like that. And, um, you know, when the smoke clears, they'll roll out another pre-planned uh, solution. You know, I've predicted that they'll have some sort of market, the beast cryptocurrency uh, that the average American will clamor for. Go, yay, we can have pizza, porn, and iPads again. Or maybe not. Maybe they just say, you know, tough shit for you uh no 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 money for you you know only the uh the only the truly wealthy will be able to tap into this new crypto market of beast currency and everybody else will be left to barter um they live in a totally different reality like they'll always be able to just rise above and do whatever mainly because you know there's so many people who think that what they do is you know achievable and worthy of supporting i mean we unconsciously support the worst in humanity every time we vote we're enabling a rigged political system uh that only brings more debt and death to us uh every time we save on wall street every time we spend money every time we uh you know watch tv we're we're empowering the worst in humanity and i can't wait until there's a time where people realize like yeah i'm just not going to watch them anymore i'm not going to vote for them anymore i'm not going to bank with them anymore i'm not going to consume with them anymore i i realize that i am the source of power and that i'm going to work on the things that i can control and what i can do with my family so i suggest to people be your own central bank 
be your own protection, be your own doctor. That's the best way of winning, you know, regardless of how this turns out. Nobody's coming to save you from yourself. No one is coming to save you. Uh, there isn't a presidential candidate. There isn't an awakening movement. There isn't anything else that's going to come and save you from yourself. You need to take care of yourself and be responsible for you and your, at least your family. Um, and I, I think that the best way of doing that is buying physical silver, getting into shape, eating healthy, uh, you know, learning a real skill and, uh, you know, and, and do your best to, you know, not be in major cities. You know, I think that's probably the worst place to be when this all goes down. Mr. Chris Dwayne, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. And Chris has got a phenomenal channel called Greatest Truth Never Told on YouTube. But I also want to tell you that Chris sells incredible silver, provides a lot of value for this because he makes only a certain number of silver that has historical. Can you talk a little bit about the silver that you have and why it's um, yeah. and how valuable it is afterwards? Yeah, it's a uh, silver shield. Uh, it's sold exclusively over at the Golden State Mint. Uh, it's mint direct silver, and every week I come out with a few new designs that are only made for that week only. They come for with a certificate of authenticity, and they sell for the same price, if not cheaper, than any of the government mints that you'd be supporting. Uh, and they have consciously wear designs. I've had over 500 different designs in the Silver Shield series. And um, there's a guide. Uh, there's one of our members that created a whole a collector's guide at silvershieldguide.com. Um, I suggest if anybody's interested in to go there, you know, pay the 15 or $20 for the guide or wherever it is, uh, and see all the stuff that's available out there. But the idea is that uh, for the same money that you'd be paying for, you know, a silver eagle or a maple leaf, um, you could get something that's not been made, you know, hundreds of millions of times like the mint has done. Um, and is available for one week only, and they rise in collector's value afterwards, over and above the physical price of silver. Um, and they, you know, part of a, a big growing series, and it's been very successful for us. We've this is our sixth year of doing it, uh, and I'm one of the few people that have aligned my passion with my career, and I've been very happy to be a part of it, and that there's people out there who support this crazy type stuff. Oh, well, I don't think you're crazy at all, Chris. I have to tell you, I think you're one of the most sane people <laughs> on the planet, and it is a great honor to know you. And uh, I'm so happy for the, that we were able to interview you today. Thank you for being with us. Awesome. Thank you. Joining us now is Kevin Massingill. He's co-founder of a company called Meriglim with Jim Rickards. And if you're not familiar with Jim Rickards, he's author of several books. One of his latest books is called The Road to Ruin, The Global Lead Secret Plan for the Next Financial Crisis. To learn more about Jim and Kevin by going to the website at meriglim.com. Kevin, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's a real privilege. Thank you. So, from your perspective, are you completely convinced that we're going to have an economic collapse? And if so, why do you feel that way? Uh, the answer is yes. So, uh, it, it, actually, the answer is of course. And it's a simple, this is eighth grade math. This doesn't require um, our predictive data analytics or any deep understanding of markets. Um, if your neighbor next door to you took out a loan for a million dollars and all of a sudden his, his lifestyle goes way up, they got new cars, the kids are going to private schools, blah, blah, blah. From a distance, it can look like they're doing really well. But if you understood his finances and you knew all he'd done was borrow money, he couldn't ever possibly pay back 
it doesn't take a, a PhD in economics or a Fed bank governorship to understand that eventually that game ends and he's in a much worse shape than he was to begin with. And it's, it's that way now across the entire Western civilization. So you've got globally debt to GDP is over 375% debt to GDP. So, so for your listeners, your, you know, the nation's GDP is your income. So just think about what you make per year, do the math in your head, right? Times that number by four and imagine yourself in debt that number. And ask yourself, how in the hell are you ever going to pay that back? And what happens when you can't? It's just that simple. Um, so for your listeners, governments typically don't go bankrupt unless you're spectacularly incompetent like Venezuela or something. But what they do do is they renege on their promises. And so everybody that's listening that has assets tied to the currency or has a pension or has some promise in the future, Social Security or whatever, uh, that the government is going to somehow step up and do something. Just know your government is broke. It's slow motion, but all bankruptcies are, right? Remember Hemingway being asked, you know, what was it like to go bankrupt? And he said, well, it was really slow. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's, it's it's the same thing for nation states. So just just be aware that your government is spending more than it takes in by in a massive number. And at the end of the day, the way they'll reconcile that, they only have two choices. There's either an honest default, they get up one day and say, you know what, folks, we just bought too many political votes with too many promises we can't pay back. Sorry, you screwed up, you trusted us, right? That'd be the honest way to do it. And everybody that owns an obligation from the U.S. government, sorry, you're just not getting paid. That's never, that never happens. What they'll do instead is they just hyperinflate the currency. So they look like they're honoring the obligations, but the check they send you won't buy lunch at the end of the day. They'll just destroy the currency. That's what they always do. Uh, and there's no reason to think it's going to change here. So when do you think this hyperinflationary event will happen? Is there, so, is there a mathematical window to say, well, well the debt's getting too much? Even if they raise interest rates at three percent, would that even be enough to cover all the money that's brought in through taxes to cover the? Yeah, so that's a great that's a great question. So a way to think about that is if if you and I and and, and your listeners, let's say we all owned a um, we owned a, a fantastic ski resort up in up in Colorado, right? You get up in the morning, we go out with a cup of coffee, and we're looking at this mountain, and we're going, uh <laughs> oh. Because we can recognize a, a snowpack overhang, right? We know what that looks like. We know what an unstable snow mass looks like. We don't sit there and go, wow, Ryan, think we can calculate which particular snowflake's going to trigger that thing? <laughs> no, we, we don't, right? We just look at the unstable snow mass and go, okay, that's the critical mass. That's the problem. The problem is not trying to calculate which particular snowflake triggers the whole thing to come down and kill every one of our skiers on the mountain that day. No, we go out with cannons and whatever the hell it is people do that that know that for a living. They go detonate that snow mass. They let it come down, right, early in the morning so they don't get a bunch of people killed. They proactively move to fix the problem. That's the point. They don't try to anticipate when it's going to happen. It's the exact same problem here. It is an impossible task to calculate that tipping point when the world decides, uh uh-oh, 
the U.S. really isn't the safe haven we all thought it was. That's a loss of confidence. It's a psychological event, and there's no way to know what triggers that or what would trigger it, right? All we, all I can tell you is we have this massively unstable situation, and just like the snowmass, we're, we're, you're far better off taking action a year or two in advance than being a minute late, right? Because if you're skiing and you hear that rumble behind you, it's too late, right? It doesn't matter how fast you ski. Likewise, the morning you wake up and you find out there's this currency crisis roiling the country, started in China while you were asleep. These things almost always start in emerging markets. Rolled across. London's in a meltdown. We found out about it when our traders are frantic phone calls at 4 in the morning, right? By the time you wake up, it's a full-blown crisis. And before noon, the president's going to close all the banks, right? And, and it's going to be too late, you won't have options. It, it won't matter if you know what to do. You've read Jim Rickard's books. You know you need to have some allocation in gold and silver. It's too late. You, you won't be able to buy it at any price. It, you know, that, that window's closed. So this is the kind of thing you want to actively take action now so that you can sleep at night. Uh, what would be two actions or three actions you'd recommend to take in order to weather this financial crisis? I mean, it looks like there's going to be something – Biggest one that's ever been. I mean, from all the people we were talking to, they said it's going to be unprecedented inside the scope. It's not, nothing like this has ever happened to the world. Yeah. Again, that's eighth grade math, right? It's not, that's, that doesn't take a PhD. If you have the world's largest exposure to what Buffett calls, Warren Buffett calls weapons, you know, financial mass destruction, right? You get quad, quadrillions of derivatives, right? We, we've, we've so doubled down on the problems that we were facing in 2008. We hadn't fixed any of them. In fact, we doubled down and made the problems much, much worse. Um, and we collectively, I mean, I mean the, the whole universe of governments and, and financial knuckleheads. So, yeah, it'll be much worse. So the, the thing you, you, you need to recognize is that the morning after this kind of financial hurricane goes through, it doesn't mean the end of the world. It doesn't mean Mad Max. It doesn't mean, uh, you know, people digging for roots in the gardens. It, it but what it does mean is a massive transfer of ownership of assets. So the buildings are still there. The factories are still there, right? What, what, what gets wiped out are the tertiary level structures. So primary wealth, think, think what God gives us, right? Cattle on the hills, fish in the sea, right? Coal in the ground. Secondary assets are what we do with those things, right? The, the beef we turn into, the food stocks, or the, or the power generation, right? That's what we do with, with, with what God gives us. The third level are those tertiary-level assets. It's the paper assets. It's the stock certificates and the 401Ks and the derivatives contracts and the futures contracts, all things that a sufficiently advanced society always builds to when they have surplus energy and they've got enough divisional labor – the Babylonians had futures contracts, right? This, is, this always happens. But when these financial storms come, those are the assets that get destroyed. Destroyed is the wrong phrase. It, it, wealth is like energy. It doesn't get destroyed. It gets changed. It gets transferred. And in this case, the ownership gets transferred. And it gets transferred to the people who hold primary and secondary wealth. So the point to all that is to get your assets as far removed from financial assets as possible. If you've got assets that are tied to the value of the dollar, you will be wiped out when that dollar's value is reset. So get into assets that that can't happen to, or in Talib's phrase, are actually anti-fragile and will benefit from that chaos. 
So be a, have some a little gold, have some silver, not ETFs, not GLD. I mean, things that clink in your pocket when you walk. Um, have some real estate, real, the key word there being real. Yeah. <laughs> have some real estate, right? Uh, preferably some, some, some income producing real estate. That's not going to go away. Uh, and that's, that's what you want to do. Just push yourself as far away from you can from tertiary assets and try to get as close to primary wealth as possible. Look at what, look at what Warren Buffett's doing, right? What's Buffett doing? He's holding this massive amount of cash and he's holding by real, railroads and oil companies, <laughs> right? This is primary hard assets as you can get. Well, I'm curious about the book, The Road to Financial Ruin, The Global Elite Secret Plan for the Next Financial mm. Crisis. So the people who are at the top, the people who have all this money, do they are they fully aware of this coming crisis? And if so, what precautions, what are they doing right now, and what is their plan when this thing happens? Oh, so that's a great question. So, so let's think about that in two levels. You've got the people who have dynastic wealth, People that control assets that have been given down to them through generations, and it's a very small group, but these are wicked smart people. I've seen a lot. Their family collectively has seen generations of problems come and go. What do they do? They do exactly what I just described, what Jim described in Road to Ruin. They, they, their bulk of their assets is in three categories, real estate, precious metals, and they also do fine art, which is it such a specific area that I don't try to do? I, yeah, I couldn't tell sense of nonsense looking at, you know, listening to somebody talk to me about fine art. But, but you see what they're doing, right? They, they get their assets out of, they don't put it in equities. They don't put it in bonds. They, they, they don't go near the exposure that that entails. They're in primarily hard assets, real assets. And, and real estate and gold are, are nicely opposite each other. Typically, Real estate and stocks do well for 20 years or so, and then it's precious metals turns. And so you can see why they're dividing their assets like that over the long term makes a lot of sense. So reinforce the first point I gave you. To the, to the other people that are currently in play, I don't think they understand the risk. They know something bad's coming. You see it in what they're doing, right? They're all buying bolt holes in New Zealand. They're all putting in bunkers in their, <laughs> in their, in their houses in California. Like, like that's, you know, the hell are they thinking? But, I mean, what they're conveying is, an un, you know, they, they're uncomfortable. They understand there could be social turbulence when the government defaults on its obligations and people feel like the social contracts have really been torn up, right? They understand there can be turbulence. Um, but I don't, I don't have any sense that they understand what they should be doing. If they were, gold would be a lot more expensive than it is right now. I'm surprised. Uh, and I'm, then surprised got, how, I'm surprised how easily accessible gold and silver are. Silver is, especially right now. I can't believe it's $16 an Yeah, especially silver. Especially silver, right? And silver is at a, at, at a, something like a 300 year all time low compared to it, what it, what it should be. So for your folks that are listening that are just now thinking about what to do, um, uh, silver is your primary best option. Uh, if you want to get it some exposure to precious metals, uh, silver is absolutely the right thing to do right now. It is so priced out of whack. It's dirt cheap compared to its value and compared to its historical relationship to gold. Uh, it's crazy. It's like a 79 to 1 right now. You know, in the Earth's surface, it's like 12 to 1. Um, Historically, for a long, long time, 15, maybe 20 to 1 has been the rate for a long time. Um, today, 
For a single ounce gold coin, you get 79 ounces of gold. Well, that's, that's a, that's really an anomaly. That is really cheap. So for the time being, if you have a little gold, I'd switch it to silver. Uh, if your switching costs aren't too much. And if you're just, if you've got some, some, some dollar bills, greenbacks, you know, you know, I spent some time in Iraq, uh, in the recent unpleasantness years ago. And we all came out with currency because it's cool. You got Saddam Hussein's face on it and these big numbers and it's a laugh, right? <laughs> well, imagine if I take that bill and I go slap that on a counter at a coin dealer and I go, dude, I like some Krugerlands. He just laughs, right? <laughs> that piece of paper is completely worthless. Um, well, right now, you could take this piece of paper that took the government pennies to create, right? And you can put it on a counter and you can have somebody give you real precious metals. Right. For a price that is ridiculously low, um, historically speaking, uh, in purchasing power, make that trade. <laughs> There's a day coming where you can slap that paper on the counter all day long and they're going to react to you just like they do right now. If I put a piece of, of Saddam Hussein's. Uh, old I am so on the happy you brought that up because a gentleman I spoke with says dollar bills are nothing more than a coupon that's going to expire. And all it is, it's just ink on a paper. It has no intrinsic value. And I'm so glad you brought up silver. Because right. I know a lot of people right. say, well, what am I going to use it? People don't see gold and silver as money. And I'm, well, because I don't think most people go to a store and pay for things in gold and silver. But at the same time, it's like if you have a crisis or a crash, it's you, sure. have, you have other purposes for gold and silver. You can use them for things. Yeah, so for six thousand, I mean, so so here's a, a way to think about that. For six thousand years, gold and silver have been money, right? And and historically, down through time, fiat currencies, meaning you know something that that has value just because the government demands you pay the taxes in it <laughs> and makes it a crime if you don't take it if you run a store. That's all fiat currency is. Um, the average lifespan of a fiat currency is like fourteen years, period, right? Down through history. Uh, Bill Bonner asked Addison Wiggin one time to uh, to do some research and list all the fiat currencies that have ever been, right? And after about a week of a bunch of people diligently doing research, he came back to Bill Bonner and he goes, hey, boss, I, I, can, can we stop now? We've got 650, 650 fiat currencies from history, and we haven't got through the Bs yet. <laughs> well, now, of all those fiat currencies, did 100% of them fail? Have any of them ever survived? Yeah, oh, yeah, every, every one of them. Every it's one incredible. Of them. Yeah, the, 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 and none of them continue. None continue. I mean, go back through history and just ask yourself. And every one of these fail. Um, the United States has had it happen, I think, at least twice. Oh, three times, right? So the, there used to be a phrase in America, everybody understood, not worth a continental, Right. Well, that was a reference to the first currency that collapsed in wow. <laughs> the United States. Well, um, I mean, it's happened so many times throughout history. Do you think this will be any different? Do you think that if this, when we have this global financial collapse and you know, we'll basically have a rehash of Weirmar, Germany, or Zimbabwe, that they're going to issue another paperback currency? Well, listen, just return your dollars and we'll Yeah, of course they will. Really? Yeah, of course they will. We're going right yeah, back to a paper now, yeah, currency? Oh, almost, almost assuredly. And, really? and, and depending on how they print that, it will fail just as quickly as the Renton mark did in Germany when they tried two or, you know, they tried two or three currencies before they finally gave up, right? Um, so, so what Jim posits will happen is that they'll do a currency reset 
that you'll wake up and they'll tell you there's a bank holiday, they'll shut all the banks, they'll close everything down, close the stock market. People forget. In World War One, I, I think they shut the, the markets for like five months, just closed them, right? So I mean, people, you know, there's a there's a there's two things your listeners have to guard against as they're listening to this. The first one is normalcy bias, which most people understand, right? Things, there's, the, the human attitude is, you know, it didn't happen yesterday. You know, it's, it, it, life will normally will continue as I'm accustomed to seeing it, right? The kind of normalcy bias. Most people are cognizant of that one. But the one that a lot of people don't realize they suffer under is learned helplessness. It's this idea that, you know what, these are kind of complicated topics. The people who talk about this on TV, they got beards, they talk seriously, and they have big PhDs from big schools. And, you know, who am I to challenge their thinking on this? And, you know, this is, this is just too big for me. I, you know, I'm going to go read a book or something. Right? You can't do that. You know, everybody remembers a, a period in their life when they were a little kid in the back seat, stormy night, cars driving, and it's a little scary. You look up and your dad's behind the wheel, right? And you think, okay, well, he knows what he's doing. He knows how to get us home. You just go to sleep, right? Every kid remembers a, an episode like that. Well, guess what? You're not seven. You're not, you know, there are no adults behind the wheel of the car, right? If you knew what these people actually knew, how the real world worked, and if you knew the questions they asked themselves at one in the morning, staring at the ceiling, thinking, oh, my God, what are we doing? <laughs> you understand there are no adults in charge of this. They don't know more than you. In fact, in, in, in practical matters that matter, they, don't, they know less, right? Um, so so you, can't ex, ex, you can't just simply tune out and tell yourself these are difficult subjects. People will just figure it out, and America will muddle through. It'll be okay. That's not how the real world works. And you have to take ownership of this. You need to spend a little bit of time reading stuff like Jim Rickards and others who can help explain it in really clear language. It's one of Jim's brilliant. It's one of the things he does better than anybody I've ever met. He can take really complicated topics and, and make them entirely approachable for anybody. Um, you need to spend some time learning this stuff and not just turn off when you hear it and think, well, you know, I've heard people complain about this since Nixon took us off the gold standard, right? We're still here. The world still continues. It'll be okay. Um, you know, folks in Venezuela may have thought the same thing, right? Um, it, it, you know, it, here's another – sorry, go ahead. Well, the, the other, the other the linkage I would, the other linkage I would tell your folks is economics is not a science. So, so people pretend it is. People in the economics profession would like to be. You know, 100 years ago, physics was getting all the glory and all the girls, and so they wanted to be more like physics. So they started creating cool math equations and sticking them in their textbooks and pretending like they were a math. Right? Economics is actually a branch of moral philosophy. The, the premise, thou shalt not steal, is actually a more valid economic concept than any stochastic equilibrium model is ever going to be, right? And so in practical terms, your audience has a better sense of economics than anybody in the economics profession today, anybody in government, anybody in central banking, uh, because they look at economics as a machine they can tinker with, they can tweak at, they can steal from you, they can steal from the nation. When they're doing inflation, deliberate inflation, they're deliberately stealing 2% of the value of the entire nation's wealth 
Uh, Jane, John Maynard Keynes called it a, a, an insidious tax, so subtle, so obscure that not one person in a thousand recognizes what they're doing. Um, that's just theft. And my point is, thou shalt not steal isn't a suggestion. It's a, it's a law, like the law of gravity, right? It doesn't matter if you believe in a creator, if you believe in God, it doesn't make any difference. If you step off a building seven stories tall or above, you're about to learn a really important life lesson about gravity, right? Well, likewise, people, businesses, nations that ignore the law of economics, thou shalt not steal, will pay the exact same type of price and just as inevitable as stepping off of a building. It will, it will cause a degradation of capital formation. You'll see a loss of property rights. You'll see a destruction of living standards. And you can look around the nation, look around wherever you're standing and tell at a glance whether or not you're standing with a people, a civilization that honors that prohibition or rejects it, right? And so in, no nation's perfect, right? But the nations that try to honor that We'll see an increase in capital formation. They'll see an emergence of property rights regimes, rules of law, right? You'll see an increase of productivity. You'll see a capital formation and rising living standards. Those are – and afterwards, we think we're clever. We give it a name. We call it capitalism, right? Or we look at the opposite outcome, and we call it socialism, as though smart people sat around stroking beards and decided to create these things. I think that's dead wrong. I think what you see is, an, is a result Capitalism isn't a system. It's a result. It's what happens when a civilization honors thou shalt not steal. That's the result. When this, when this collapse does happen, do you see the United States and the majority of the world going like on a more tyrannical path? Because it seems like right now I feel like the things are really kind of pressing upon. I feel like the, the loss of civil liberties is happening so quickly, so fast, and so alarming. So I'm wondering when this collapse does happen – if the governments will do anything they can to preserve themselves at the expense of suppressing the people. I'm just curious what your perspective is. Yes, I take a really long view about that kind of thing. I think Western civilization as a whole is nearing its complexity limits where today we are so complex that everything you add, every element you add, you're not getting the same return back from. And there's a finite amount of resources a civilization can use before it just exhausts itself. And I think we're really close to that point. Um, one of the high water marks, if you look down through history, one of the high water marks of civilizations, there's actually two of them. Uh, one is the moment when you see a civilization begin to build walls. That tells you they've reached their, they've exhausted their moral limit. They no longer think of themselves as being a universal value for mankind. Now they're defensive and they're just trying to protect what they have, right? So the impulse, think about the impulse in the United States to see a wall on the southern border. Um, it's not just about crime control. It's not just about drugs. It's not just about illegal aliens and the impact on votes and that sort of thing. It's also a statement of moral exhaustion because 100 years ago, we wouldn't be talking about building a wall on that border. We'd be talking about invading northern Mexico, Right. <laughs> if we put a wall up, it'll be down on your Guatemalan border, Bubba, right? So, I mean, think about the difference in the civilization's attitude, right? We're, we're reaching an exhaustion point. The second indicator I would tell you is when you see a civilization devalue their coinage, and for us that was in the mid-60s, that's another huge indicator. 
I used to think that demarcated when a government became so corrupt that they would just, you know, completely dishonor the thou shalt not steal thing <laughs> and begin to just <laughs> give you fake money, right, and take real money off the table. I no longer think that. I, I used to think governments were more important than I do now. I, I believe now what that indicates is when the civilization itself became so corrupt that they wanted something for nothing, and the politicians just had to run to stay in front of that. A generation, a hundred years before that, if you tried to take the, you know, the gold and silver out of their coinage and just hand, hand them zinc dipped in copper, would have tarred and feathered you, right? And the, I think the reason people accepted it in the 1960s is because that generation was already so corrupt. They wanted something for nothing, and they thought this theft would help them get money from their, their, their neighbor's pocket, and the government would help be the transfer agent. And I don't think governments lead that. I think governments were following. No, I was just going to say, for, so for me, Western civilization, having fake money, um, <laughs> um, having an impulse to, for protection, not an impulse to expand, not an impulse to share their values, um, I think is, is an indicator of societal exhaustion. We're at the end. Uh, now, how does that play out? It'll be different in different places, right? That what, what emerges as a new regional government in California will be completely different from uh, where I live in, you know, the panhandle of Florida. Um, but I think the countries, the nation states, as we think of them, will break up into their more base elements. Um, well, and that's just inevitable. I mean, look at a, pull up a map on YouTube and watch a time series of borders changing down through history. This is nothing unusual. It just seems unusual because of normalcy bias. We all grew up with America looking something, you know, looking like this shape, and that's just the way it's supposed to be. Well, that's, that's a historical anomaly, and it won't be that way at some point. The question's when. Yeah. Mr. Kevin Massengill, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. And I, I tell you, your insight was very fantastic. I love the historical um, references that you were bringing up. If you want to learn more about Jim Records, you have to check out the book, The Road to Ruin, the Global Elite Secret Plan for the Next Financial Crisis, and uh, also the book, The Death of Money. They're both fantastic books. Kevin, thank you so much for being with us today. They are. Thank you, Ryan. Really, uh, really a pleasure to join you and your listeners. Thanks. Joining us now is Mr. Robert Wiedemer, president of Aftershock Publishing, managing director with ARC Financial Management. He wrote a fantastic book called Aftershock, Protect Yourself and Profit in the Next Global Financial Meltdown. You can learn more about Mr. Wiedemer by going to his website at aftershockpublishing.com. Mr. Wiedemer, how did you come to your realization and conclusion that we are headed for some dark economic times ahead? And what is your vision of the future of not only the U.S. economy, but the global economy, let's say, for even the next 15, 20 years? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you start out with a small question, right? Uh, oh. <laughs> small scope. Wow. Um, all right. Uh, we'll go with the first one. Uh, basically, the the book the book and was also a, I should add a co-production with my brother uh, who is a co-author and PhD in economics and honestly we've been looking at the economic scene for a while especially since the internet bubble and so forth and um, we just saw that you were in, in when we published our first book America's Bubble Economy in 2006 we wrote it in 2005 we could see that you were getting another internet-like phenomenon more importantly or, or to the point you were you were getting prices that were well above the fundamental 
drivers of the asset values, or simply said stocks were getting high priced, um, housing was getting high priced, and we could see other bubbles forming, particularly uh, in, in uh, private uh, lending, uh, bank lending, and these all kind of work together, consumer spending. Um, and we thought they'd all go up and, um, you know, in a virtuous cycle, create a, a boom in the economy. And once one of those bubbles popped, and we said back then it would be housing, and we were right, it would bring the other bubbles down. And the response, uh, though, would not be to just let it all pop. The government would respond by massively increasing its borrowing, which it did to, for a while, almost a trillion dollars a year. We're, we're down, I think we're going to run about $600 billion this year. But massive borrowing, and that has to be supported by massive money printing. Uh, otherwise, you will drive up interest rates and have a big problem on borrowing. So um, we said that basically when those bubbles popped, two bubbles would be inflated even further, uh, and that's money printing and, and, um, and borrowing. The money printing went up uh, massively. We quintupled our money supply. Um, debt we only doubled um, from about $9 billion uh, prior to the crisis to about 19, excuse me, I say billion, 9 trillion to about 19.3 trillion a day. I was actually in New York looking at the debt clock, just seeing that. And so that kind of leads into our, the, you know, just what you're asking about, where are we heading in the future? Um, well, we're, we're heading in the future where we will basically keep the stock market, real estate market, and to some degree the economy up as long as we can keep the money printing going to keep up uh, the debt bubble. So the final bubble to pop over the next 10 or 15 years, and certainly it's going to be much sooner than 10 or 15 years, will be the money printing bubble. When you can no longer print money and not scare investors um, or create a lot of inflation, that's when we're going to have problems. So when people say the Fed's out of bullets, central banks are done, no, they're done when, or at least the Fed's done, when it prints, a, say, $200 billion a month and the market's still going down. So when they're shooting lots of money at the system and the stock market still goes down, that's when the Fed's done. That's when central banking's done. Um, so, Ryan, let me just ask. I've talked for a while there. Uh, do you want me to kind of elaborate sort of where we go after the bubble, the, the money printing well, bubble pops? or Before well, before we go to the after the money bubble pops, how close are we to that day of reckoning, if you want to call it? Uh, closer than a lot of people think, that's for sure. A lot of people on Wall Street sort of think that, well, we're just in a 70s-like period where maybe there isn't going to be a lot of, of, of growth in the stock market, not a lot of growth in the economy, and we kind of hang around for a decade, sort of like a Japan's lost decade. People forget Japan's lost decade was very different, though, in that their stock market fell almost 75%. Yeah, the, the economy was flat or down, but, but the markets collapsed, as did the real estate markets. So this is going to be a little different. It's certainly not going to be the flat decade. Um, how soon are we going to be there? Well, I'll tell you, right now I think we're the market is is poised to, to fall because we're not, we don't have any money printing. Is that going to be this month or next month? I don't know. It could be any time in the next six months. But I don't think it's going to be much beyond that. You're going to see a fairly dramatic fall in the stock market. Um, it could be longer, but again, anytime in the next six months, you could see a dramatic fall. It's all defined that as 20 to 25 percent, a big fall in the stock market. I think the Fed's response will be to print money to push it back up, 
I think that'll work to some degree because we're not printing a lot of money right now in the you know, QE style where we were doing $85 billion a month. Yeah, we're keeping interest rates low, but it's when they, they do QE, that massive money printing, that really helps the market. I think it'll work one more time, but I think that's where we start to get to that point where people get worried. And just what I said, when, when, when investors get worried, that's when the whole thing blows. So let's say it goes down, comes back up with a little bit of money printing. No, no, it's going to come all the way back up. But you set off a nervousness in the market where, frankly, almost any time after that, um, it could go down, the Fed prints, it goes down more. Maybe there's a fight, you know, the market goes up a little, and then it goes down. The Fed has to start printing, let's say, a quarter trillion dollars a month. And, and, and there's a point where it just goes down and it doesn't matter how much money they print. In fact, when they print money, let's say they go to 500 or half trillion a month, uh, it just doesn't work. It just scares the heck out of people and, and the market's down. So, you know, we got a year here where I think you can go down and save. After that, it, people are going to get a whole lot more nervous. And, and I would just say be careful anytime after that. You've got it seems you've got two forces. You've got uh, government policy and then you've got the free market and I guess this, uh, this belief or idea that you have that, okay, the free market always wins today. Well, how is the free market able to fully respond to things when the distortions are so great? And I'm wanting to know if the government's able to suppress this collapse from happening, who's got the greater power in this position right now? Does the government wield more power than the free market does or the uh, investors do? I just want to know how that was currently working and when does that actually slip? Sure. When well, can that actually change? Yeah, I mean, right now the the free market isn't very free. Certainly, in in bond markets or stock markets, they're they're pretty heavily influenced by government policy. Yet, I would say in the end, free markets always win. In a sense, that's why bubbles always pop. Is is it ultimately gets back down to the fundamentals? Now, the government, especially a government, is big and powerful as the U.S. government and U.S. Federal Reserve can maybe postpone reality, inflate bubbles, postpone reality, postpone the effects of free markets, but it can't ever get rid of them. At some point, that's basically what I'm predicting, is the free markets will, will once again uh, uh, come back. Cause, again, it's, it's kind of like in China right now. China is printing a lot of money. They're building a lot of, uh, of construction projects, uh, offices, mostly apartments, shopping malls, infrastructure, People don't really need the free markets not demanding, uh, but the government's building them. That can't go on forever. Uh, same thing in the U.S. This can't go on forever. Um, so I would say the free markets always rule in the end, but the government right now has the upper hand because it hasn't lost credibility, and it's not absolutely proven this is wrong. A lot of people think the money printing isn't a problem and, and won't cause any problems, or at least maybe they don't think that, they hope that. A lot of people will tell you that $19 trillion in debt's not a problem. And in fact, we should probably borrow more. Uh, and so it's not been proven it's, 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 it's a problem yet. Ultimately, it will, and I'm saying that ultimately isn't more than a, a, a few years off, maybe even quicker, but probably the government can keep this you know, thing going for a few more years. And I, I use that a little generally, two, three, maybe four. That seems high on my side, but it's probably two or three more years. Um, so let's not think the government has the in, I guess the the final say or the final power, but it does have the power to make it worse. No, let me again. I want to make it clear. I don't think the government's keeping us up, and that that's all good. The government's only pumping up a, a bubble and a problem, making a problem far worse when it finally pops. So uh, that's really all a government can do. All right. So when you're talking to someone and 
do you want to explain to them what actually happens during this crisis? How will life be different for the average American? What happens when the dollar bubble collapses? Sure. So, yeah, well, again, first it's money printing bubble pops in the sense that money printing or dollar bubble it doesn't it doesn't work it it really does create inflation i know everybody kind of laughs at you when you say well we printed you know 3 trillion dollars and it hasn't created inflation yet i know but i think it will and more importantly even before that uh what i think the collapse looks like is uh, it, it, the money printing doesn't keep the stock market up so it'll be the stock market that'll be the first to react in that the, the Fed will try to pump the market up and it won't work too well. Maybe the Fed says, well, then we'll just print a lot more money and maybe that works. So you kind of maybe do a stair step uh, of money printing until at some point, and again, I don't think it's that far off next few years, it, it, it doesn't work and they print money and the market goes down. At that point, the Fed's you know running out of bullets. That's your, your trigger number one. After that, um, because you're, you're, the reason the market's going down is loss of faith in the Fed, loss in the faith in monetary policy, uh, your bond market gets hit. And, and that's kind of unusual. Normally, bonds are the smart ones, and they see things coming earlier. But in this case, or, or they can also be a, 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 a source of safety, a flight to safety out of stocks into bonds. But because this whole thing is caused by a loss of faith in the Fed, and, uh, and that means U.S. government bonds, that's the next market to get hit. And that's also going to force interest rates up. If your bond market starts freezing up in any way or, or, or people are reluctant to buy bonds, then uh, interest rates are going to start to go up. That hits your real estate market. So from a, a, a mar, from a, um, an asset or an investment standpoint, it's stock market, bonds, real estate. Those can all happen fairly quickly. But that it's almost exactly opposite of 2008 where really what real estate bonds stocks. Um, this one's different because – it starts with a loss of faith in the uh, in the Federal Reserve. Uh, what does that mean for the rest of the economy? Well, similar to 2008, once that stock market falls, uh, it, it, that itself has has big effects on the economy. But if you add to that uh, problems in the uh, um, in the debt markets and then that and problems in real estate, well, you know everybody depended upon those debt markets and real estate also get hit. Um, and it starts to, you know, ripple out throughout the economy. People cut back on expenditures. They get more careful. So obviously, anything involved with discretionary spending, discretionary consumer spending is in trouble. Anything involving housing, home goods, that kind of thing, all of it, it starts to ripple out from there. And and you know, everybody's hoping that somehow the Fed will be able to save us. But in fact, of course, at that point, it's it's that's exactly where you're having the problems because the Fed isn't able to save you anymore. So the ripples can get pretty strong in terms of the economic effect. And let's be clear, that's global. Uh, if we have problems, uh, you know, the old saying, and I would still agree with it, if um, we catch a cold, the world catches pneumonia. Uh, won't be any different this time. A lot of what's keeping Europe and China as stable as they are, not saying they're that stable, but as stable as they are economically, is the, the stability of the U.S. Um, market and economy. If we start getting destabilized, boom, goes to the rest of the world. Great. But as far as life goes for the average person, are they? You envision uh, a, a situation where hyperinflation kicks in, where people's uh, money will no longer be worth anything. You actually see uh, the dollar completely collapsing. No, I, I don't see it completely collapsing. Um, and, and hyperinflation for the U.S. is much lower than people might think. It's not like 500% or something like that. Even even 25% inflation in the current economy is enough to cause massive problems and massive unemployment. I mean, let's face it. Uh, what if what if home interest rates weren't three and a half, four percent like they are now, but were 20, 25 percent? 
what would happen to the value of homes, what would happen to home sales, it's pretty grim. So long before you get to a very high inflationary environment, you've got a big problem um, with interest rates and, and with, with inflation. Uh, in terms of the dollar, no, the dollar doesn't become worthless. It just becomes worth less. Uh, but think of what that means. What if, what if over a period of five years or, or so, the, the one dollar is basically ten? I mean, you know, you kind of phase out the one dollar bill and, and replace it with the ten. That's a big, huge issue for the way people are looking now. Remember, you're selling treasury bonds at ten years, ten-year treasury bonds for 1.4 percent. That basically doesn't wipe out the value of your bonds if all you had was 25% inflation, which certainly doesn't make the dollar worthless, but it does make those bonds worthless. It means that pensions can't be paid. It means that people's savings, life insurance are all gone, even at 25% inflation rates for some years based on the fact that we're paying so, so such low rates now. We've, we've artificially, in a non-market way, pushed those rates way too low. It's setting people up to be crushed. And stock, same way, real estate. People count on their homes now to sell at a good price so they can fund their retirement. That's not possible, even in a 25% inflationary environment. Um, So although inflation, I think, will go higher and the dollar will go down in value, I don't think it will become worthless, just worth less, and inflation will be high by by U.S. standards, um, and that's enough to cause huge problems by itself. Uh, you, you don't need hyperinflation to bring down this market in any way, shape, or form. 25% would do it. It's just, no problem. How did you come up with a different conclusion and perspective about the economy when so many other people have a much rosier outlook? And I'm curious as to why other economists don't share a similar perspective when you are fundamentally looking at numbers. I figure that numbers in, uh, would be in something that would be difficult to argue as far as trajectories of economies go? It's a, it's a great, great question because if you – we just you know, had the, came out with the movie or, or there, was, there was the movie The Big Short that just came out, and it dealt with exactly that question. How can some really great investors – in fact, most really great investors completely missed uh, the fact that uh, home prices are going to decline – and and that there would be some good short investments in there, hence the name of the movie, The Big Short, and a great book, by the way. Only a few people really caught it, even though the the investment was being pitched by you know a salesman from Deutsche Bank, very mainstream, very well respected. Very few investors caught on to the investment. Why? Because they didn't want to. Because it meant a bigger problem with the stock market, and it meant a big problem with their current investments. Uh, and they didn't. They'd rather not see it. Uh, so the reason people, I think I see it, and some people don't, is they have, uh, they don't want to see it. I mean, and, and why do I want to see it? Well, I think, I don't think that I want to see it. I'm willing to. And I think that there's a lot of people who just aren't willing, willing to see it. They would rather it not happen. I agree completely. But at the same time, uh, that's not going to make it go away. I'd rather it not happen, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to see it. And if you look at an economist's exact same thing, almost no economist saw this coming, whether they were with the Federal Reserve or with Princeton or Harvard. In fact, Paul Krugman did write an article, Why Did Economists Miss 2008 So Badly? I don't think he had a good explanation, but uh, clearly emphasized my point. They missed it, and, and I think they're missing it right now because they don't want to see it. Um, as they said, in a general level, the Federal Reserve's never predicted a recession. I mean, their job is to kind of keep people's, um, you know, spirits up, keep investment spirits up. Uh, they're not there to try to predict recessions, uh, even though they say they are. They're really not, and that's true with a lot of investors. I mean, if you look at stock analysts, um, over ninety. 
well, as high as 95% of stock analyst recommendations are to buy or hold. They're there to sell stocks. Uh, they're not there to try to spot the problems in stocks because ultimately that's a problem for their business. So I think you'll find that it's not that people necessarily dumb. It's just that they don't want to see things either economically or investment-wise, and some people are willing to, and probably that has to do with personality or situation, um, but clearly this isn't new. Uh, the movie The Big Short shows us very recently what it's like. I think we all remember the internet bubble. Um, people want to see something, and that's far more powerful than the numbers or, or the reality, and well, that's the reality. It's unfortunate, but but you're right. The numbers should tell it, but no, they, they, they would, they, they'll, they'll ignore the numbers and, and see what they want to see. And that's true both in academia, I think, and in the investment community and government, certainly. Thank you for answering that. I want to come back to uh, something we talked about a little earlier about debts. Um, you know, U.S. apparently has $19 trillion in debt. People don't think that debts and deficits matter. I wanted to – it's a two-part question. I want to ask you, why should people be concerned about – outstanding great debts and what negative consequence does debt have on a nation's ability to grow its economy uh, at first it it doesn't have too much in the sense as long as you can borrow at low interest rates um, the effects are actually beneficial one reason we build up debts if I gave you a credit card you didn't have to pay any any significant interest or, or principal payments, you might use it a lot, right? Because the, the benefits are immediate. You can buy stuff you like. You don't have to make any hard decisions about cutting costs or finding a second job or whatever. And, and that's what we're doing right now. So debt doesn't immediately cause any problems. Uh, and if you can print money, uh, it makes it even easier because ultimately – you can keep interest rates low. Uh, I mean, imagine how much you would borrow, or I might, or or General Electric might, if they had a printing press in the basement. <laughs> you know, they could print money. Um, so it's very tempting at first to 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 say there, you know, to do it, and hence it's very hard for me to say it's a problem right now because right now it isn't. That's the reason we get into this. Uh, it only becomes a problem when you can't print money without causing big problems like inflation, like a collapse in the stock market. Uh, and, and that's really where it kicks off is, is, is you, you and, and people know this. They know it ultimately down the line causes a big problem. If, if debt doesn't cause a problem, you know what? Let's introduce a bill into Congress tomorrow and let's spend $2 trillion on stuff. I'm sure there's stuff we can find to buy and that would certainly create jobs. There's infrastructure, there's schools, there's all sorts of things we could do with the money, right? But nobody really proposes that. So I think, in reality, you know, Ryan, they, they kind of know what I'm saying is true, that there's a big problem with that. But what they'd like to say is, yeah, but what we've got right now doesn't matter, because obviously it doesn't matter right now. Um, no, uh, I, it, 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 you're right, it doesn't matter right now, but it will matter big time, and you know it, because you're not trying to borrow another $2 trillion tomorrow, because if it really doesn't matter, let's borrow $2 trillion tomorrow. And let's run with it. And they won't. And same with money printing. If you really think money printing is, doesn't cause any problem, let's just do it today. I mean, it's obviously the market, stock market's had problems ever since we stopped money printing. Uh, obviously, there's there, there's issues. So if money printing doesn't cause any um, any inflation, why do we ever taper it off? Why do we ever not? Why, why do we ever go down? Why do people ask for higher interest rates? Because they know fundamentally I'm right. They're just hoping they can get away with it right now. And I would say right now for a while they can. It's a really stupid move 
because it will blow up later on, and I can't say that's tomorrow or, or even this year. I don't think it will be. But that doesn't mean that when it blows up, it's not going to blow up. I should say it doesn't mean it's not going to blow up, and it's just a really a matter of when and how bad. And the more you print, the more you borrow, the worse it'll be. Mr. Robert Wiedemer, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. You can learn more about Mr. Wiedemer by going to his website at aftershockpublishing.com. His book, Aftershock, Protect Yourself and Profit in the Next Global Financial Meltdown, also on his site. You can sign up for newsletters, and you can also do cons- uh, consulting with him. Mr. Wiedemer, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Ryan. Okay, everyone, that concludes part two of our four-part series on the coming global economic collapse. Special thanks to our amazing guests. To learn more about the Outer Limits of the Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. Thank you so much for listening. Want to be heard or seen in front of millions of people? Want to be an expert on TV or radio? Goldman McCormick PR is a New York City-based public relations agency that specializes in traditional and social media placement for law, finance, media, and corporate-based clients. Goldman McCormick PR also are specialists in website development, radio show creation, press conferences, media training, and so much more. Check out GoldmanMcCormick.com for more information. GoldmanMcCormick.com. 